Hello and welcome to Series 2 of the Learning and Development Challenges podcast. Adam here as your guide. In this series, we're looking at how to better engage frontline or deskless workers with learning. And today we're talking with Rick Hopcroft, who is Learning and Development Manager at Toi Ahomai Tepu Kinga, the New Zealand Institute of Skills and Technology. Rick has over a decade of experience in the field of learning and development, where he plays a pivotal role in supporting staff in their professional journey. Alongside this, Rick serves as a training officer at the New Zealand Red Cross within the Disaster Welfare and Support Team, demonstrating his commitment to professional growth and community service. His diverse background has equipped him with a unique perspective on the challenges and opportunities that exist within the learning and development landscape including the unique challenge of supporting largely deskless volunteers. Rick, it is fantastic to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Oh, kia ora, Adam. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here. And I should note, by the way, that Rick is in New Zealand and so is talking to us very late on a Friday night. So we really appreciate after the end of a hard week to find time to share your thoughts on everything. Definitely. So let's start with the first question because I don't want to waste too much of your time. First of all, I'd love you to talk our listeners through both of your current roles, because to be honest, they're super fascinating, both your day job and kind of your volunteering roles. They're also both really relevant to the topic that we're looking at diving into in this series on frontline workers. So over to you, Rick. Yeah, thanks, Adam. The Toi Homai Te Pukinga is New Zealand Institute of Skills and Technology is a vocational education provider. So we have all of the different providers around New Zealand have very recently in the last few years come together as Te Pukinga. And it would be akin to colleges and, and technical institutes and vocational education providers in the UK. Yeah. And that is, well, Toyo Homai Te Pukinga is based in the Bay of Plenty. And then Te Pukinga generally is across all of New Zealand. So I'm looking after one little area, which is awesome in terms of learning and development. The New Zealand Red Cross, the work I do with New Zealand Red Cross is more based around volunteers in the Bay of Plenty or in Tauranga, where I live specifically. And like you say, that's a volunteer role that I've got within the team here. We've got a team that deploys nationally, and each main area in New Zealand has a team that can deploy nationally. Quite often, if a major emergency happens in one area, a different team will come in to support that area over the sort of weeks of the disaster or the incidents. And then nationally and at New Zealand Red Cross, I'm in a few governance roles and the working the training working group as well, which looks after some of the strategic training and learning and development for our volunteers. And that presents very different obstacles and opportunities as well. We I'll hopefully talk through some of those. There's a great learning culture at both organizations, but for very different reasons. So yeah, that's a, a bit of a wrap up at Toyo Homai, the work that I do there. We have a thousand staff or around about six, seven, eight hundred staff in, in my area. And really a lot of that is professional development in terms of their academic strength. So as kayako or tutors, really upskilling there. And, and we've got a lot of enabling functions, a lot of support staff as well. So enabling their core roles, whether it's teaching or some other role, as well as their their interest and their delivery as well. So, for example, automotive tutors will need to keep up skilling in automotive as well as the teaching side of things. And then there's the leadership side or any other sort of personal or professional growth. So really, it is quite interesting. And the thing I love about working in vocational education is I can have conversations to people about professional learning and development for 
arts or music or engineering or welding or or sport and health and nursing and that's quite a challenge but it's also quite interesting yeah so that's a little bit about what I do there yeah it's a really broad spectrum of topics that you're having to cover at Toy Hall Mai isn't it because yeah. you're like you say you've got your subject matter expertise but then you've got all the soft skills the leadership skills that kind of flow through and that are needed throughout the organization and it's a big learner base you're looking at there, like a, a thousand people with all the support stuff yeah, and I also get the unique opportunity to work within vocational education. So I also am exposed to great professional learning and development for businesses around us. So there are hot topics out there that we can tap into immediately that we can send our staff along to opportunities that exist within our organizations. And we also partner with Waikato University, who we do some work with in, in terms of programs. And that's fantastic because our staff get those opportunities as well to go more diverse and as te pukinga have come together nationally well that then unlocks other opportunities for example down in the south island of new zealand there's some real strength there in terms of culinary culinary art and management there so some of our tutors were able to tap into that and, and just make it more feasible really to get into the, that side of things so we are very lucky yet yeah, to work in education and it's something i'd suggest within the learning development community to really understand vocational education the polytech system the university system because it's just such an eye-opener and universities and politics want to work with businesses as well. It's just good practice. So finding someone in those roles and the key roles is just a real asset if you can do that. So, yeah. Brilliant. And just out of interest for further, further context, I guess, what are the most popular subjects, topics that people are learning? Yeah. So for staff at Toyohumai Te Pukinga, we've, vocational education is going through a major shift in focus at the moment and rightfully so we have a major focus on Māori achievement so that's Māori students and Māori staff as well so we have a lot of programs that we run in-house and we deliver to the public for example that uh, we can strategically align ourselves with and certainly our key performance indicators as an organisation is to lift some of the more underserved groups like Māori students who were and still are slightly behind non-Māori or are, are behind non-Māori. So that's a major focus and how we can strategically tackle that. But one of the ways is to make sure our staff understand more tikanga, which is Māori protocols and even language and other things there. So those are opportunities that have been massive in the last three or four years for Toyohomai Te Pukinga and Te Pukinga as a whole nationally. So those are great opportunities and our staff love that. They love the opportunity to get involved, to understand more and learning aspects of another culture. And yeah, myself, I'm non-Māori, but I see myself as a Kiwi, as a New Zealander. And so Māori is part of our culture in New Zealand, and that's just fantastic to learn more and more, and to the benefit of all students and Māori students especially. So that's probably strategically one of the biggest ones, but there are other things as well. You know, in the last year and a half, we've had health and safety qualifications, for example. A lot of our health and safety or our, our reps in health and safety or, or staff who wanted to move into health and safety or learn more about health and safety, whether that's a building tutor or a manager that where that's a gap, we're lucky that we've got a really strong health and safety program here. But there's other things as well. The university that we partner with, for example, is doing lots around adult education. So the sort of higher postgraduate level and master's levels of education, adult education especially. So there's lots of, and there's hundreds of varieties. I could go on for hours, but there's quite a bit there that we can tap into. Mm. Cool. Well, let's talk a bit about 
frontline staff and a bit about the current approach. And so there's actually two groups we can talk about here. There's your academic staff, your teaching assistants and support staff and everything. And then there's also the work you're doing with the Red Cross, both different groups, both quite different challenges and sets of learning, I imagine. But what's your current approach with both of them? What kind of mix of stuff are you using? Yeah, great. At Toyohomai, we have, like you said, we've got the enabling functions, which are our support staff, and we have academic staff. And a lot of the focus on delivery is around student engagement, student achievement. Those are some of our biggest focuses. And which, if we offer, if we have an opportunity for staff to come along to engage with, what we've found is the enabling staff, the support staff, are more likely to jump in there because they're they see the messages, they see the, you know, they're sitting at their desk maybe a little bit more near their computers and they gobble up those opportunities. And that's great. But sometimes the focus is for teaching staff. You know, this is something that the enabling staff understand as well. So we have to sometimes make sure that there's opportunities for teaching staff during times. And this is something I learned very early on that I need to be careful where our facilitators and our presenters and even myself make sure we do these in times that might suit. For example, a lot of courses, uh, a lot of programs teach Monday to Thursday and then Friday's a study day or or Friday's a a day for students to catch up or do things. So we'll often deliver on Fridays or Mondays because that's the way the week might work for them. Or there's academic breaks as well where the tutors will spend some of that time doing professional development or learning sort of on courses, etc. So we really try and make sure that's available to academic staff because we know that support staff and enabling staff are usually available on those times as well. They can, they have a lot more flexibility and this is something that everyone appreciates and it's just even though I wouldn't call necessarily academic staff deskless workers, it's just a real constraint that we need to be aware of. For example, we have Tadeo Māori as a as Māori language and we traditionally would offer those as night courses and of course any staff member can attend those at no cost. But the comments that were coming through is, yeah, that's great, but we're also teaching, you know, throughout the week and it's quite a commitment to then go every week to night classes. Yeah. And so we negotiated with Takura Māori, our Māori team who, who teach today, to, and they were really stoked as well, to put on a, a staff course during a Friday and we immediately filled those up and, you know, I'm, I'm a partner in making sure those opportunities are in front of staff. So that's sort of some of how we get around that and I know that might be really common sense for most of your listeners and that was certainly sort of common sense when I came in but there's a lot more nuance to it than as well and even being open with applicants about or people that are keen to engage being open with that is really important so people know why we're doing it certain ways and making sure there's enough opportunities and variety there so people can engage on different days and times yeah. Yeah, it's simple, but it's one of the most effective things you can do, isn't it? Which is make training available at times, dates that actually suit your learners. And I think you you can get wrapped up in new programs and initiatives and you kind of set the date and everything without engaging your stakeholders properly. And it's an easy, it's an easy mistake to make. But like you say, it's one of the most important ones for getting actual engagement. Yeah, and I think this goes back to something you've, you know, your podcast is really strong on, which is relationships. If you have those relationships early on, then you can start to build an understanding of what will work for deskless workers or people that are not in front of their desk as often. And we certainly have found that over the years is that understanding your leaders, understanding your, you know, your workforce is just probably the most important thing there. Yeah. 
And so what's the mix of, if we're just sticking with the academic staff at the moment, or I guess on the support staff as well, what's the mix of digital versus in-person that you're using right now? Is it a blend? Is it mostly in-person? What do those yep, look we've like? We've definitely found a lot more success with in-person lately. I think people maybe will express that they would want to do more online, but then when push comes to shove, what we'd see is we'd see that actually if you put the same opportunity in front of them, face-to-face, they'll carve out a time in their calendar or their teaching week where they will then attend. And even with leaders, even when with leaders, they like to have that time. So it's booked in their calendar. And of course, if they need to cancel, they'll cancel that. But really, they'll appreciate coming along to something. Even if it's a fair chunk of their week or their month or their day, they will actually prioritize that if it's a big deal for them. So I really think that the face-to-face is huge. But we've also done hybrid. So recently, we've developed a conflict resolution de-escalation training packages as a response to just that that need coming up and we're doing the hybrid was great because we can say yeah we want to get this group together we want to do this face-to-face exercise we want to do this you know this session but we want you to complete something online first so or audio and for a lot of uh, users it was an audio version of this and so then understanding that completion of the audio and the and the video section and then that drives engagement with the face-to-face and people know as well we're not going to run that until we've got this core group of people and then we can run the face-to-face session as a bit of a supplementary because we need to have that balance right and that was some feedback I got from one of the leaders that's all well and good doing this but this is one of those skills where you really need to put that into practice and have a run through so I, I think that sums up some of what we've done yeah in terms of that mix that's smart though because you're using a blend using digital to maybe give the basics the context and then you're using in person to create that i guess more in the moment kind of learning that that needs to be a bit more social and so and and pulls people together in that way that's really interesting do you think it's a little bit cultural as well just because if we think about the 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 product that that you deliver to your students a lot of that is face-to-face so do you think the kind of preference towards face-to-face is because they themselves a lot of the learners are doing that in their day job or is yeah there, i think um, that, that's probably right and for those tutors who are delivering online because we do have a lot of tutors who deliver online content they may want to have to be face-to-face <laughs> yeah. uh, with their colleagues often these are often done with their colleagues and their friends and i think people do that do take that opportunity and often if we have you know, staff traveling, we'll make sure, you know, we really host them. And people from around the other parts of New Zealand, when they come, we'll make sure we host them really well. So it's definitely as part of our learning culture is getting together and that social. We still have people who did things like induction together, who still have strong bonds or leadership programs who still, you know, talk to each other about certain methodology. And that's a really strong part of it too, yeah. Yeah, and like you said earlier, don't underestimate the power of those relationships. And mm. relationships need to be continually worked at, improve the more shared experiences you create there, the stronger and the deeper the relationship goes, the easier it becomes then to to kind of all the, all the, the simpler, the more harmonious the organization works, I guess. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Assemble You, the audio learning experts. Adam here, co-founder of AssembleU. We launched AssembleU in 2022 after finding we were doing a lot of our own personal development using podcasts and audiobooks. We loved audio as a format and wanted to combine the convenience of listening to something with outcome-driven learning that had a real impact. The result is a power skills library 
of more than 130 succinct audio lessons that do the heavy lifting for the listener. Assemble You Lessons help coach listeners through critical topics like leadership, mental health, well-being, productivity, growth, sustainability, and communication. Each Assemble You audio lesson is around 10 minutes long and backed by research and real-life expertise. Every lesson includes a key point infographic, a further reading list, and testing. Listen to some free samples or find out more about how Assemble You can support your organization to build an internal podcast for learning by visiting assembleu.com. And then just a bit about Red Cross, if possible, you know, what's the approach there? For, so for we have completely different approach to our learning culture at Red Cross. In New Zealand Red Cross, we have, there's a number of different volunteer groups and deliveries, but for emergency management, our disaster welfare support teams, we most teams train every week or every fortnight and they come together. So even when we deliver online content, we deliver that together. So we may have PowerPoints or some training material that we run through and all of those are curated in a way where you don't have to have internet access. We want in a big principle within New Zealand Red Cross and the Federation or the New Zealand Red Cross Red Crescent movement is enabling people to access this kind of resource and this training and this um, engagement without those barriers so we definitely want equity within our volunteers so yeah they come along to training I think you know a lot of them do have really high technical skills in our team in, in Tauranga we have IT experts and, and things like that and in fact New Zealand Red Cross we have a, a international emergency response unit and our specialty is internet or IT&T so telecommunications and, and networking and things like that so well, we do have a strong IT system but we generally getting crew together once a week whether it's in uniform or not in uniform running through a lot of practical skills in order if we deploy often we won't be we won't have technology on our sides if we've got no mobile coverage or no power those kind of things are limited so we need to be sufficient without those things so it is interesting and we do expect our leaders and some of our training officers to have a few more skills in that space um, because they may, may, may need to present so that is quite a different learning culture and just having that space, that training space, that learning space every Monday or in Tauranga, it's every second Monday sort of thing. And we just get together and really build those relationships amongst the team, present a topic, and then, you know, you know they build on that over the year. Are you running drills and things like that as well? So like how to respond in certain scenarios, like very kind of, I guess, physical, what to do, first aid, is it, yeah, is it all yep. that so kind of stuff? So during winter, we do more first aid and emergency management skills in terms of being on deployment and helping people out in that way. And then during the warmer months, we will do, you know, setting up a, an emergency a response, a, a welfare centre, for example, where we need to sleep hundred, yeah. hundreds of people at once. And then so we'll set up those kind of things as well as the logistics around that. We In New Zealand, we follow the Coordinated Incident Management System, SIMS, which is quite a rigid framework because the police, the fire, the ambulance service and, and local councils who cover emergency sort of response, we follow that same framework. So really, a lot of it is acronyms and, and, you know, understanding who does what. There are seven major functions within SIMS. So really having everyone understand those components is important so that when we deploy, we know the language that the council may be using when they deploy us right. to do certain tasking. And we do a lot of psychosocial support, a lot of visiting around the community to make sure people's 
basic needs are met. So there's things like using our data gathering techniques. We have a bank of tablets, for example, that have surveys on them to make sure people uh, have their needs met. So that all of that training is just, you know, we build on that all the time. On Monday, although I wasn't there, our team lead ran through a deployment. So as in he sent a deployment message like our team would receive, we needed to respond to that and then come to the training night and with full kit, with full deployability so that we could leave half an hour later with a loaded vehicle generators and trailers and all the bells and whistles so that was just an exercise in itself because oh what did people not bring and then we ran through a module that has been designed for us by the training working group and some experts over the years and it's you know for example the powerpoint presentation and we've used things to help us develop the night so to speak but there's quite a bit of flexibility within the teams as to what they do brilliant so you're cross training people and that that's almost like i call that the kind of the debrief approach so you know you run a drill you practice something in real life and then you look back right what went right what didn't go right what's really important that we you know what adjustments do we need to make sure that next time we run this or next time we're in the field this you know this happens that type of thing which i'm a massive fan of from a a training point of view especially when there's something physical or when you're in an environment where there's lots of moving parts or it's very high pressure which it will be if you're responding to a you know a disaster or something like that being able to almost do things on autopilot because you've gone through it enough times rehearsed it enough times basically that you know what you're doing and i, yeah, and I yeah, think I that's what separates us right is humans have yeah. this ability to learn from other people yeah and i know that sounds basic but to your example when we get back from an actual deployment uh, we sometimes would spend weeks of training just reflecting on that deployment our first time going back. our first time back it might be cleaning gear and really making sure everything's back to the spick and span standard that we want to have just checking over gear making sure everything's good and we might do a cold debrief then as well where we're you know it's more methodical and you know we go through that and and recently after a major weather event earlier in the year we had quite a new member deploy with us. And so I asked her to present. In fact, I presented on her behalf um, some of her learnings. And that was fantastic because we had a few other members who are newer there as well. And so we all got to learn. And it was a good reminder for the existing members who had been there a long time that if we are deploying with newer members, oh, well, you know, don't just take it for granted that they'll remember this or know this or have this gear and understand that sort of thing. So it was really good to have that personal approach. Mm. And I guess you've got to create a really psychologically safe environment for that type of process to happen because people have got to be able to talk candidly about, right, this did go right. This could be better. We need to do this in a different way where nobody takes offense or nobody is blamed or anything like that. But it is all just wrapped up in a, how do we improve on this for next time? How do we make this a better process the next time we do it? Absolutely. That's probably the one of the biggest things in emergency management is you could critique anything because this is not a normal situation. And sometimes cool. either the public or, or responders will blame certain other groups or themselves for on deployment. But that's, you know, we can learn from it and we keep those things. And we're lucky within New Zealand Red Cross, we're well respected, but also, you know, we're really impartial to some of that decision making and some of the discussions that go on so so we really just keep our heads down and do our thing yeah cool so what what's working in both environments and i guess quite importantly like how do you measure it do you measure it you know or this this thing that comes up in learning and development all the time is you know you're measuring your improvement and stuff so so yeah but like, i mean first of all you've mentioned a couple of things that are, that are going really well which is great but yeah any others and then plus how do you think about measuring these things sure so if i take it back to at toyo Homai, te Pukinga, 
I take that back to one of our strategic objectives is to lift the achievement of Māori students. That's huge. And the things that we can do there, they benefit, you know, our staff and our students. And so learning and development and the opportunities that we provide, and we created a program called Te Pai Tata, which is a massive undertaking in terms of staff, you know, engaging with the training, engaging with the opportunities. But that program within itself, it would be very hard to define whether that achieved equity or, or work towards equity. But we believe that, you know, the high level of engagement with staff and the great level of feedback that we had from those opportunities was a great start. And then if we talk about data, we can talk about, again, we I don't want to overstate that the, the program itself made a massive impact on this, but we, for the first time in a long time, we saw Māori student success lift. And that wasn't necessarily a symptom of the program, but it was a wider focus within our organization. And again, that's maybe why the emphasis was put on by leaders to engage with this program. So I think it's a little bit more holistic than saying this is what did it, or that was it the yeah. our strategic alignment to Māori student capability or progression and retention and things like that? Or was it, you know, one particular thing that happened? Was it a major focus that had changed? Or was it this training program? Or was it other opportunities? So I think we can say that was the strategic direction, but as part of that, we had opportunities there for staff to engage. So really data-wise, that's some of what we've looked at. And just generally in terms of other opportunities that staff get, we go through about this time of the year, we go through a bit of an evaluation on more of a long term. We don't just want the reaction side of things. How did you find, you know, because people apply at Toy Hall, my people apply for some funding or some support or some time off. We'll get great reaction back from them, but it's we want to see but that behavioural change further on. And we can often talk to managers and, and staff about what they've seen. When their, their jets are cooled a little bit and that excitement is worn off, you go, you know, if you want to be honest with us, how did you find that and what would have worked differently and better? And it's about this time of the, the year that I'll go out to, especially people with the larger investment, there's an expectation there that we want to hear that that feedback. Yeah, so that's quite interesting doing it that way. Brilliant. I guess same question for Red Cross. Is there a measurement ROI figures that you track in terms of learning and development? Yeah, well, so we definitely, one of our biggest metrics is deployability. So if I've got a team of mm. 16 or 20 in Tauranga, at any one time, how many of those people are deployable so that we've got some core programs that those people need to go through. It's not just training programs, though. We need to make sure they're police vetted and verified, and that has to be done on a biannual basis. We need to make sure that they've got not just their driver's license, but they've done the safe driving certificate, the psychological first aid, the you know practical first aid certificates, those kind of things. So even though that sounds like really basic for one individual, when it's, you know, when team members have been there for years and you've got new team members coming through, then it's the deployability is a big one. And if we don't have a core team of two or three vehicle loads of people that can be deployed, whether they can go that day or not, you know, for a week or three or four days, whether they can go is different. It's whether they're deployable in general. And so that was one of our biggest metrics. And a training officer is really doing a great job if they've got a large percentage of their team deployable. Uh, and we do team audits as well. It's one of those things that probably could be done more often, but when we do team audits, that we look at that kind of thing. And every at the start of each year, what we do is we do a, a self-reflection exercise. We've got 40 criteria and people grade themselves on how comfortable they are setting up each piece of equipment or using you know different techniques. And so that 
often defines what our training program is for the rest of the year. And usually by June, July, it's all gone to heck anyway, and we have to change that up and it's all over the place. But it is still quite a good metrics for us to use. And of course, the final metric we have is deployment as well. So when someone's on deployment, it's what feedback did they have about it and what feedback did we have from other agencies, providers, that kind of thing. Yep. Is that formalized? Do you collect like survey data or something after the fact, or is it more like anecdotal? or talking to people and getting a kind of feel for you know how the deployment went yeah i think i'd put it somewhere in the middle it's we you know there are formal debriefs that happen that are well noted and minuted and all that kind of thing so we do those ourselves as well as the other organizations will do those the lead agency for example in a major earthquake or flooding event will do a formalized sometimes we're involved in those and sometimes we're gone by then the immediate response phase is finished up and the recovery phases we might be involved in that sometimes but it's generally during the later recovery phase that an organization or a council for example would do a full-on review and yeah so it's a mix of those things really cool amazing yeah i like that that's two really like solid things you can measure there almost like you know I, I really like that how many people do you have that are deployable and it's they're definitely not simple all those different things when you multiply it up across you know a big team of people all having to do those and like let's not forget all these people are volunteers this is not their full-time job is it you know they all have lives families jobs outside and so this is on top of all of that as well so yeah it's a big it's a big ask for people and across new zealand we have people that aren't deployable that are happy not to be deployable they may be there you know when you get back at three o'clock in the morning to help unload and get things ready for the next um, shift that goes out or they may be there as you know admin support or something else again new zealand red cross is really you know making sure there's a place for everyone and the capabilities in the team so it's not always a super negative thing that someone's not deployable but of course i mean any organization of that size there's so many different roles that are required so many different moving Mm -hmm. parts aren't there it's yeah it's it's impressive to keep it all running so so smoothly i'd say great so I want to talk about barriers actually a little bit because, you know, one of my favorite ways to learn is to talk about challenges and how people have over overcome them. So what have been the big barriers with both your day job and I guess that and, and volunteering in terms of engaging frontline workers? And I think I'm married to a teacher, so mm-hmm. I I know how difficult it is to sometimes get academics to learn because they've got so many other things going on during the day that, yeah, it's a problem. But I'd love your take on you know some of those things how you've addressed any issues that you've come up against yeah no that is a great one so at work you know there's a few highly engaged leaders that i hugely respect in terms of their drive for learning and development for their teams and i love working with them they are huge advocates and we don't always agree on things you know they are huge advocates for investing in their teams and what i've found with a couple of those leaders is that they'll use terms like finding the time, carving out the time, they'll prioritize those things. So even though I'm like, wow, this person's not going to have time to help me with this or to, you know, consider this thing that I'm coming to them with, but they will prioritize a lot of that early on. And I sometimes reflect, you know, as this person, the leader I'm thinking of, because they're doing such a great job and because they're prioritizing that, you know, there's a few organizations in New Zealand that do that really well. And I think that's the same with other you know not-for-profit organizations and things like that you know we at red cross as a different organization 90 percent of what we do 99 percent of what we do is learning and development so it's quite a different challenge there the challenge is actually 
too much learning, too much development, because without deployments and without opportunities to, to work within the community, people will disengage. And that's like saying to a teacher, you're going to spend, you know, the next couple of years observing this other person. You know, that's not, that's, yeah. you know. <laughs> Learning how to teach, but without actually standing up in front of a yeah, class. Yeah, it's almost. like the ship's yeah, safe in the harbour, but that's not what they're built for, right? So Yeah, so yeah, exactly. The, ships in the harbour, I like that. Yeah, and so for us, it's really that balance. And I can see both sides of it separately. So I know that our tutors, our teachers, our kayako, they are engaged you know, in teaching all the time and they to learn themselves is maybe taking away from that. But the passionate ones, the advocates are there and they excite, you know, they excite the colleagues. And it's partly my job as well to excite people and demonstrate the benefits of engaging in this. And when something happens, uh, I need to be responsive as well. When something becomes a need, I need to be responsive. And sometimes we talked a while ago, sometimes that's proactive. So I can see something coming up. And sometimes it's reactive and sometimes that's reactive to individual staff and sometimes that's reactive from an organization's strategic perspective. And so really it's just this, the whole time it's this balancing act of where do I put my energy and where, you know, where do I ask people to put their energy if I'm giving an opportunity out there? And, you know, some people just ignore me and that's fine. Other people, it just sometimes hits the spot for them and they go, mental health, first aid, it is something that I've recently sort of realized I needed a, a thing or, or de-escalation or multicultural capability or, you know, health and safety or any of these other examples that we've used or certainly even at Red Cross, you know, the incident management side of things or first aid, if we hit the sweet spot and we have those opportunities there, they'll gobble them up and we don't have to work as hard convincing people. And a question you asked a while ago is around the compulsory nature of some of these things. And as much as I'm I don't want to say anything's compulsory at all. I don't want to make people engage with learning. That just doesn't feel right for me. I'd much rather hit the sweet spot more often than say, oh, this is a mandatory training. And yeah, there, there are some that we will have to do in terms of child protection or working with, with younger students or essentially children um, or vulnerable groups. There are things that we will e expect staff to do, but generally we'll just let, you know, try and give those opportunities to find that sweet spot. Yeah, that's really interesting, that mix between having a vision and a strategy for what you want to achieve over the course of the year, but then being flexible enough to react to things that do come in that warrant, you know, further training or resource and getting that balance right is the recipe that will draw people in rather than you kind of always pushing stuff onto them or you and your team yeah saying oh you've got to do this you've got to do that it's and again that comes back to stuff we're talking about at the beginning making the programs available at the right time mm. making them interesting bringing people together to do them all this kind of stuff is i guess all helps in that making learning and development more attractive to the group should you're trying yeah, to work it's with. not always our job to tell the story right both organizations i, I work for and with we've been lucky over the years to have such great leadership that will tell that story and yeah seamlessly these opportunities will be there ready or be in the background or people will tap into them proactively and I just love that because it's it feels more like effortless strategy so it feels like strategy but it hasn't been labeled as you know organization development we must do this and this it just happens and people are more excited about engaging in those things because they can see the direction of the organization yeah just on a practical note, and I get this kind of brings us into our next question, just around technology and things like that. But 
you know, I'm guessing everybody in the Toyohomai, you know, has a laptop access to technology. And so getting information out to them is quite easy. Is it, you know, email teams? Is it that type of thing that you're doing in terms of comms? Because comms has come up again and again with these interviews we've been doing around how to engage people with learning, especially frontline learners that maybe aren't sat at their laptop all day. And that could easily be academic staff because they might be stood up teaching instead of actually like on their emails. That's right. Yeah. So when those academic staff do get back and they see messages from our team, the people and culture team or the learning and development people like myself across New Zealand, I'm sure a lot of them uh, see that as a nice to have, yet their workload is so large that they can't engage or they ignore it. Or And that's some of the conversations we've had. But it also it might not just hit the sweet spot. For example, when I have sent something out and all of a sudden I hear from a very different group of people, I go, oh, so people are reading this. It's just not the right time for them or it's not the right content for them. And that's absolutely fine. But I'll go back to what we've talked about so often. And this is something that I've learned more than anything in learning development. It's relationships. Because if we've got a group of, and we do have deskless workers at Toyohomai, and it's really up to their managers to make sure that those opportunities are in front of their teams. And if you've got great relationships with those managers, then you can see them from time to time and just make sure they're passing these messages on and not just unfiltering all those things and not passing them through. Even just saying it that way seems a little bit condescending of me because it really is the manager's job to make those split second decisions every day. What am I going to overload my team with? And, you know, I trust the managers at both organizations. I trust the managers to to make those split second decisions for their teams. And we're lucky to be surrounded by great ones. So, but if you have that relationship already, then they can ring and go, what's this all about? Because this just doesn't click with what we're doing. It's so, you know, and then you go, oh, wow. And and that might sometimes inform what you're providing or what you're running. Or they say, hey, this is what we need. Can we stand this up pretty quickly? And it might be that because of that strong relationship, you can talk more frankly and more candidly about that. And you can sometimes answer in a way that they might not like, but they've got that professional relationship and the personal relationship sometimes where they'll take your advice or your comments a little bit more seriously. And you can work together to come up with something mm. that's the bit i love and actually that's probably the difference between the something being ignored or maybe flagged in an inbox for later but if you've got the relationship and they know they can give you a quick call or drop you a quick message and just say i think this is for us but i'm not quite sure on this and this you can answer that question straight away and they can then make that decision and just you're so right by the way about managers and that whole protecting their team's time because that's actually a really important part of management we have a lesson on it in our library that we developed last year and it's just one of those things it's almost like a duty of care as a manager you know if you're overloading your people with giving them too much stuff then things are going to drop so you've got to be a filter or a sieve in a way to sort of let some stuff through but not everything and so coming back to relationships is is spot on if they can pick up the phone to yourself or one of the team that's right make sure it's right that we we recently had or lots over the years I've had leaders ring and say, this is great, but we want to do it very differently. And and I go, ah, okay. And sometimes they then take that responsibility on organizing, you know, 70% of it. And I just need to turn up and deliver, or I need to make sure uh, there's the opportunity there, you know, in that certain format or those dates that they've organized. And that's just great to get some of the team who do struggle to get that time. But if there is a group, it's fantastic. Yeah. Brilliant. So penultimate question is on culture of learning. And we talked about this a little bit when we had a a chat before we started recording, but I'm really interested to get your kind of take on 
learning culture. A lot of the people we've spoken to so far in the series are not teaching academics. And obviously learning culture is huge if that's your business, you know. So I'd love to get your love to get your thoughts on learning culture, its importance, what works, what helps it, what kills it, all that. Yeah, no, great. Again, being a, a tertiary, you know, vocational education provider, we're surrounded by learning. Some of the best teachers are the best learners and they're yeah. constantly learning and they're constantly engaging. They're doing industry experience. They're you know, they're learning from their students who have a wealth of industry knowledge, very different ways of doing that. Sometimes they're <laughs> unteaching bad habits and sometimes they're learning the great things as well. So some of our best tutors are also the best learners and, and that goes a long way in terms of, you know, learning within the flow of work and other sort of principles there as well. And what is a large focus in New Zealand to move vocational education to workplace learning as well, giving students more opportunities in the workplace. And that's been yeah. quite an, an upfront sort of change in direction in New Zealand. And that, that's great because that gives our learners more opportunity. And we're seeing that in a change over the time within some of our programs as well. So I think that's even within teaching, that culture of learning is changing. And our tutors will hopefully be instilling that in themselves and their teams as well. Yeah. So the Cool. What what do you think can what do you think can damage a learning culture? Have you seen any instances of things that, you know, can harm that? I'd say just a lack of engagement. As much as what I've said, I'll stand by what I've said before, is that yeah. people that are disengaged with it will sometimes be forced into learning. They'd be, you know, be told that this is something they have to do. Whereas if they're finding time, if they're carving out time to keep engaged in that, then it is something that, that will experience organically throughout the year or throughout the cycle and you know some of it does come down to time and resources and you know financial constraints and things like that but if we you know think of the 70 2010 model as well there's so many opportunities out there the reluctance to engage in things like mentoring and understanding that that you know I've always in terms of mentoring I've always said it's you know one of the greatest privileges is to be asked to be a mentor and it's just fantastic you're getting this wealth of experience and the mentor themselves will also be getting lots of experience for similar reasons I just said about our academic staff learning. You know, it's a great opportunity. So the reluctance and not being engaged and, and attitude as well, you know, having a positive attitude to strategic direction and jumping on board with that, it can make a huge difference for learning culture. And more of the negative side or, or not engaging in that can stunt that growth. Yeah, and that's within New Zealand Red Cross and within as well is those barriers there yeah yeah and i guess it's like the, the antidotes you mentioned earlier right training at the right time in the right environments at you know times and dates that work for people so it's about engaging with your stakeholders and understanding what they're really after to make sure that you're delivering as a team absolutely and to that as well you know staff and volunteers understanding a clear direction understanding things like goals organization goals and key performance indicators and things like that which might not necessarily mean much to, to some but it does help direct people with their planning for the year and their engagement and the what is sometimes important to the organization people will see benefit and that being important to themselves as well so it does work well yeah Brilliant. Cool. Right. Final question, Rick, and then I'm going to let you get on with your weekend because uh, it's getting late there. So what's your top tip for anybody with a frontline workforce going into L&D? What would you say if you had to pick one thing to one piece of advice you'd give? Yeah. 
when I first started in learning and development, there was definitely a, an element of imposter syndrome. So I'd come out of HR, human resources, and I wanted to specialize and I knew learning and development was for me. But I thought, and this has certainly you know, come through in the last few years, I thought that I needed to have more practical hands-on skills in terms of learning development, being able to complete really thorough needs assessments and evaluation programs and all of these kind of tools that I found quite scary. So what I did instead is I lent on my personality and building relationships as a mask to that because I knew if I had good relationships, I knew that I'd be able to get out a, a lot of information from managers and make sure I was sort of meeting the needs of their groups without necessarily having doing some of these things. And what I learned over the years is that I was probably doing the right thing. That's And now, certainly yeah, nowadays, it's that. all about relationships. So even though I've mentioned it quite a few times, it's relationships. And you've got to think, what is my personality? What would work well for my personality? Is it you know, helping managers in certain ways, is it, and, and by the way, that, you know, a learning and development professional in an organization has got one of the best jobs in, <laughs> in the organization. You're often really positive, you're, you know, you're solving problems or you're engaging staff with exciting things or you're helping them develop themselves professionally. And, you know, some of the leaders that I've helped over the years are now in senior positions, which is really cool because we've worked together over those years. So the relationships actually mean so much. And how is your personality? What kind of things can you do for your personality? Because you don't need to force yourself to be like another learning and development professional. You can use your own skill set, for example, to be an asset for the organization for that leader so that they can answer questions more openly and understand the needs for their team. And you can ask questions more candidly and things like that. So that's probably one of my biggest tips. And the other one, which sort of is like this, is early on as well, I found that when someone did something fantastic in the organization that I worked for previously, I would be offended. I would be offended if I wasn't involved because I'd go, but that's learning and development. How, oh, how yeah. have if they done that without me? Now that I, you didn't come up with, basically. That's yeah. right. And, <laughs> and this is definitely the imposter syndrome. But I learned very, early, you know, very quickly that actually I needed to embrace that because it just makes everything better. So I was sort of the selfish guy that thought everything needed to come be and even be funded through our, you know, our business division or our business group. It should be funded by us. Oh my gosh, you've just, you know, done this. And I was protective of that budget, you know. And so, so actually those are the two things that I'd suggest people, or three things really I've talked about. Find yourself an awesome mentor. Don't gatekeep learning and development. You want to be an enabler. You want actually all those things to happen organically. And yeah. yeah the sign really, that you're doing your job well, I think if people are, are doing proactively doing their own learning and development. And it, you're right, it's your natural instinct if it's your job to deliver that is to think, why hasn't that come through me? Where yeah. whereas actually, you know, yeah. you're spot on. If it's not coming through you, brilliant, because you're having more impact at scale across the organization than if it was just you and your team did it. That's right. Yep. And the third one is definitely just relationships is and that they all sort of tie together nicely. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, I asked for one, but we'll let you off with three. So, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, thanks for that, Rick. <laughs> no, we had to, I think I had someone give four the other day. <laughs> so we were good. Well, if I was going to do a fourth, no, I'm just kidding. Maybe I need to reflect on this and pick a better question that asks for what are your top four tips or five yeah, tips? Because yeah. I think everyone's always got more than one. Yeah. Fantastic. Really appreciated your time. Thank you for coming on and sharing your expertise and experience as well. It's been a really interesting interview. No, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Adam. Kia ora. 
Great. Thanks, everybody. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Learning and Development Challenges. We hope you enjoyed that. This podcast is brought to you by AssembleU, the audio learning experts. Adam here, co-founder of AssembleU. We launched AssembleU in 2022 after finding we were doing a lot of our own personal development using podcasts and audiobooks. We loved audio as a format and wanted to combine the convenience of listening to something with outcome-driven learning that had a real impact. The result is a power skills library of more than 130 succinct audio lessons that do the heavy lifting for the listener. AssembleU lessons help coach listeners through critical topics like leadership, mental health, well-being, productivity, growth, sustainability, and communication. Each AssembleU audio lesson is around 10 minutes long and backed by research and real-life expertise. Every lesson includes a key point infographic, a further reading list, and testing. Listen to some free samples or find out more about how AssembleU can support your organization to build an internal podcast for learning by visiting assembleu.com.